Isn't it a beautiful thing to celebrate God's kindness and the gift of children to his church? The Lord tells us, let the little children come to me. And no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they enter like a child. In many ways, as we approach the subject matter that's before us this morning, this this difficult and sometimes indefinable word of meekness has the aroma of childlikeness about it. And as we approach the word of God this morning, I hope that you would, almost through the power of the Holy Spirit, if the Lord would, would grant it, you'd be able to receive his word today like a little child. And the fresh astonishment of his love for you and his grace for you would sit on the very surface of your hearts as we listen attentively to God's word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we believe what we just said. That this word will stand forever. All the words that we're going to speak today on a variety of things will not stand forever in the way that your word will stand forever. In recognizing that, we are putting ourselves even right now in submission to this word. And we're asking for you through the Spirit to give us understanding to give us the encouragement of this word, and in receiving it, to receive it with meekness, the word implanted, as James teaches us, so that this word would root, eventually fruit, in our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. Come and hear this petition and answer it according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might have noticed in our reading over the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us in this study on the Beatitudes, the blessed life, as we've been calling this series, that we're adding a verse each week. We started with just that first verse, verse 3, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and then verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, and now today, blessed are the meek. One of the reasons that we're adding verses each week is to remind you as a congregation that these Beatitudes are not meant to be understood as as individual statements from the Lord. Nice um, paradoxical aphorisms that are meant to be excerpted. Um, No, these are meant to be understood together. They're meant to be understood as a whole, and in fact... They're meant to be understood as in a definite order, that God has structured the Beatitudes in such a way so that we would recognize the Beatitudes that go before give birth to the Beatitudes that come later, and the Beatitudes that come later are reliant upon the Beatitudes that came before. There's actually a rhythm and a pattern and a dependency of relationship that's in each of the instructions of the Beatitudes. If we could put it this way, it's, it's like we're 
setting up, or like Jesus has set up, a, a, a row of dominoes. I was watching this week of children who were playing dominoes, and they gave up on the game of dominoes, and they just started stacking them in a row and touching them and tipping them over one by one, and this little snake-like domino fall game began to happen. And, and in some ways, spiritually speaking, that's something of what's happening in the Beatitudes. Poor in the Spirit being the first of the dominoes. Grief and sorrow for sin, spiritual mourning being the second, and here meekness being the third. And if you can, if you can understand the nature of what's happening is when the first is touched, when poverty of spirit is given, it leads to a sorrowfulness for sin, a grief over sin. And then when grief over sin comes in a cry of mercy, what begins to happen in the heart of an individual is we become meek. And we'll describe what that meekness is. And so meekness is born out of the fruitfulness, the preconditions of poverty of spirit and sorrow for sin. And if you can think of it this way, some of our kids this week actually got their school schedule, which is just cruel to get it at the end of June. To have, me, to have to go ahead and start thinking and worrying about the school year. And you got another whole month before school year begins. But they got their schedule. And if, and if the children who are younger in my household had received an assignment like Algebra 2, it's going to be your, your subject for the fall, that would have been completely out of order if they'd not had Algebra 1. And that's the case for the youngers in my, in my household. And they would have been completely at a loss as to what's going on in Algebra 2 because they didn't have the prerequisite of pre-algebra and Algebra 1 to prepare them for engaging that subject. We can't jump in to meekness unless we have jumped into the poor in spirit and the spiritual mourning that, that is prerequisite to and in some ways conditions our hearts to grow into the meekness that's described here in this passage. There are foundations for it. Now, when you begin to understand that, you, you begin to see why meekness shows up in the Beatitudes. Why that this poverty and bankruptcy of spirit, this humbleness and sorrow for sin, true grief over sin, gives way to this softness, tenderness, this patience, this gentleness, this long-suffering that is the collection of of synonyms that could be used to describe this, this, this multi-angled, this kaleidoscope of a word known as meekness. Now, as you could tell, meekness is a hard word to define. In fact, I took encouragement this week in reading through several commentaries and realizing that the commentators had a very difficult time translating this word. In fact, William Barclay just came out and, and said it directly with kind of tongue-in-cheek in his commentary. He says, we have come now to the untranslatable beatitude, meaning we're not sure exactly how to capture this one in a word or two. It's very broad in its meaning and in its, in its depth, which, which is why we don't really use it very much. Like, when was the last time you used the word meek? Exactly. You can't remember the last time you used the word meek. In fact, when you thought about using the word meek, the last time you used the word meek, you're like, did I use it right? I'm not sure if 
that's how I was supposed to use meat, which is why John Blanchard, in commenting on the word meekness, says it's prone more to distortion than definition in our day. He said that alongside several other scholars that it, it, we've associated it more in, in a negative sense than in a positive sense, worldly speaking wise. One Catholic scholar says it could be because meek actually rhymes with the word weak and we have thus collapsed the two together in the modern era to believe that they pretty much mean the same thing. Now, I'm not sure about his conclusion uh, or his reasoning, but I am pretty certain that his conclusion is correct. Now, one of the dictionaries that I actually looked at this week, just an English dictionary, uh, trying to define the word uh, meek, says it almost in wholly negative terms. Meekness is a complacency. It is a resignation. It even goes on to describe it as a person without conviction. Now, when you think about it in that description, and if that's sort of the impression of the word that's lodged away in our minds and hearts, we think, blessed is the person who's meek? Like, really? Uh, who would want to be meek after a description like that? We'd like to stay away, you know, from this term. I don't want to ever be described in the, in the way of meekness if that's what it means. But of course, that's not what the ancients meant at all. Aristotle, for instance, saw meekness as one of the highest virtues that one could ever achieve. He referred to it as a quality that maintains a balanced life. Now, by balanced life, he meant a person who kept themselves from moving to the extremes. Someone who could, could temper or manage the various emotional impulses that would rise up in their heart and stay controlled. That's what he meant by, by balanced. It, it didn't mean that you didn't feel anything, like you're the milk toast of kind of the virtues. You get run over, you're the doormat of the virtues. No, that's not what he understood. He said it was more the strength of heart being tempered, being controlled, being balanced, being released in the right way which gets to the spirit of James, James chapter 3, that co collects the word meekness alongside wisdom. Uh, wisdom, knowing how to act in the conditions and circumstances that you find yourself, knowing that certain things might be appropriate in this location at this time with these people and other things might not be appropriate in this situation with these people and under these circumstances. Wisdom, knowing how to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. Meekness very deeply connected to that. And for Aristotle and many of the Greek philosophers and the ancients of old, they understood those firm convictions and those strong emotions needing to be tempered by a kind of staidness, steadiness, a composure, and that being what they would describe as meekness. Now that understanding of the term, though outside the parameters of of the Bible's direct use of the term, does get to its historical usage. In the first century, where it is we find Jesus speaking, and Matthew here uh, writing, would have largely used the term meek to describe the process of a wild animal becoming a tame animal. 
That was the process of meekness. When a wild animal, an unruly animal, maybe a strong animal like a horse, for instance, being as we describe it as good Middle Tennessee walking horse kind of people, a horse being broke in order to be rode. A horse being broke is not being, it's not being removed of its strength. No, a horse being broke is being directed or guided to use its strength in a controlled and tempered manner. Meekness. That would have been the ancient way that the Greeks really used that terminology. And this has been firsthand in the Sheridan family this week as we've had a brand new pet enter the family. A little dog, a little Maltese-zoo. It's about the size of my palm, about eight weeks old. And this is our second go-around with the dog. Some of you know that. We got a dog a couple of years ago who was terrible. <laughs> Utterly terrible. Dog was six months old by the time that we got it. It had never been trained before. And we as a family, largely making an emotional decision over cuteness, brought this dog in our midst having no idea it was going to entirely wreck every semblance of order in our family. And after a year, we gladly handed it off to a friend who is now an enemy. No, 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 no. <laughs> to a friend who we appropriately warned, who when we told them said, listen, she's bad, like she's terrible. Like, I don't know how to describe it to you. And I went through several stories, which I'll spare you at this point. And they said, we've got two dogs. We know all about dogs. It's going to be great. And so, okay, wonderful, wonderful. Take her. So they took her. And then two weeks later, we talked to them. And go, like, how's it going? And they get, you know what they said? She's bad. Like, she's really bad. Like, and we were like, I told you. I told you she's really bad. <laughs> so we entered very slowly into the, what I uh, proposed name for the new dog was Redo. Didn't win. The dog is actually named Bailey. But anyway, so far so good. I'll keep you posted. That movement from wild or, or, or unruly or strength diffused in, in action that is destructive, um, unproductive, unpurposeful, um, outside the parameters or the, or the reins of what would be effective and faithful, the movement of moving a dog to learning like when it should sleep, when it should eat, when it should go outside and go to the restroom. Those, that process of training is very often the word that's used by the ancients as, as meek. It, a steadiness, a, a bridledness. Now, if you think about it, that's a great way to describe what's going on with us when we're saved. You know, the word that's used very often of, of us before we are converted is the language of rebellion. What does it mean to be rebellious? It means that you're not under authority. You're not in submission. Your, your power and your strength, your, your intellect, your emotions, your wits, your will are being used in destructive ways. They're using outside the authority of what you were designed for. It's... it's it's experience of conversion and the grace of God beginning to break into your heart and life that begins to tame you, it, which is to restore you 
to, to the order and effectiveness of how it is that God had designed you. And what's remarkable about that in, in the picture is that it, is, it means to, to literally become a person who is under the rule of something. It, we're trying to train Bailey that she doesn't rule the home. We're trying to establish an authority that in the kingdom of Sheridan, she's down the totem pole. And we want her to live according to the rules so that the whole place can be shalom, <laughs> peaceful, right? This is the Beatitudes. And this is what God is doing in our own hearts and lives. He's bringing us into that submission to his authority. Who is Jesus? He's a king. What's he doing in the Beatitudes? Establishing a charter of his kingdom. He's describing what it's like to be blessed within his kingdom. And blessing within this kingdom is meekness. Blessed is the one who's meek, for theirs will inherit the earth. Now, what's beautiful about the way that God's taming works in our own hearts and lives is that he doesn't lose his temper with us and force us with a kind of brass-knuckled response to our unruliness, but he instead woos us with his power into a grace that transforms us. I love the way that Maurice Roberts talks about this in his book, The Thought of God. A wonderful book. I'd recommend it to you. Beautiful devotional volume. In the third chapter where he speaks about Elijah and the still small voice of Elijah's story and, and ministry, he speaks of God's power as coming in the wind, but then his effective work done in the gentleness of this voice. And he combines this idea of strength and gentleness that's right at the very heart of meekness. Look at what he says. He says, the most important acts of God's power are those which touch the secret springs of man's soul and his heart. It's not the demonstrative powers of his care over all of the world and the elements. It's in fact regeneration, sanctification, repentance, growth and grace. Notice how he describes it. These are products of his divine omnipotence acting with marvelous gentleness and love upon the internal workings of the heart of man. It's beautiful. It was really different to be forced into something against one's will. It's another thing to be wooed by one's love and, and gracious power and, and in some ways become, become tamed. Become tamed. The older, you know, the older understanding even of marriage. Men, I'm with you in this in the room as I say it, so don't get offended at me. Men married, in many cases, it was a form of taming them of domesticating them in the right sense of the word. Their energies often being individualized and adventurous and, and driven towards particular pursuits. And then the yoke of the burden of a family, the holy and good burden of that yoke, had a way of shaping a man to think about bigger things, better things, right things. In similar ways, the yoke of Christ is like that. 
I mean, because God actually teaches us in the scriptures that by his grace, this training happens. That's the word he uses in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It's remarkable. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Praise the Lord. And this is what he says grace does. It trains us. It, it, it tames us. It trains us. What's it trained us to do? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What's that? Rebellion. Renounce it. It trains us to renounce it and do what? Live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That's the picture of what it is that God's actually about in, in your life. The work that he's doing is he is making us, moving us from rebellion, from, from wild to tamed. Now, in the picture that's given to us here with regards to meekness, there's actually a shift. If you look at the poor in spirit and that particular beatitude, what, what's it asking us? Well, it's asking us to self-evaluate. Who do you see yourself to be? Are you poor in spirit, meaning you're needy, you're bankrupt, you're destitute? The word that he uses there is for someone who is a beggar. Or, or do you see yourself as rich in spirit? I've pretty much got my stuff together. I, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. I, I, can, I can do whatever it is I need to do. I've got the resources. I've got the mind. I've got the degrees on the wall. I come from the right pedigree. We think of ourselves as rich in spirit. He said, if you're rich in spirit, you're not blessed. So in the poor in spirit, whose really is the kingdom of God. Then, then he says, when you recognize that you're poor in spirit and you're given over to the things of flesh, you sorrow because of all the sinfulness that's in you. You've been warring against, with enmity, the rule of God. And that brings sorrow to your heart. Now you're broken. So what's the process? Now we want to bring you into the rule of God and the blessing that comes from that through meekness. And, and the shift that's happening is that meekness is not primarily about your self-evaluation. Meekness has to do with how you relate. How you relate to God. How you relate to others. Your manner. Your conduct. Your, your behavior. Uh, think of the way it's used in the Word of God. So, for instance, James 1, 19 through 21 it says that when we are meek, we relate to God through his word in a very unique way. Listen to the way James says it. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. What's that? Rebellion. And receive with meekness. The implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. What a beautiful phrase. Receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. What's he saying? He's saying if you're, if you're really a follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, here's your posture before the word. You come humbly to the word of God because you know you're under the authority of God. And as you come to the word of God, you sit quietly under that word attentively. Like, like Martha, you're sitting there, you know, right? At Jesus' feet and you're, you're listening, right? You wait patiently on the word of God. You want the word of God to do its work in your heart. You wait patiently for that word until that word begins to transform you from the inside out. 
It begins to change you. You receive the word with meekness implanted. Notice the word it's using to describe the work of the word in your heart, an agricultural one. It's saying until that word roots in you. Now, when something roots, what's it mean? It can't be pulled out very easily. You know what happens to a lot of the words that we receive? Even words like preachments such as this is they come and they sit on the top of our, our heart as seeds and they never get worked down into the soil and before going, they're gone. They get blown away by the wind. They get eaten up by the birds. They get other messages that get seeded in our heart rather than the word of God. He says one who is meek, who's receiving the word with with quietness, with humility, with patience, is working that word into their hearts. They're letting that word have sway, have authority over them. They're living with meekness. Notice, they don't, they're not quick to speak. They don't, go, they don't listen to a verse and go, no, wait, 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 just a minute. They, they don't do that. They don't interject. They don't object. They, they brood. They think, they meditate, they consider, they work it in. They let the word have its work till it tenderizes their heart and they begin to receive it as implanted. Later, James and James 3 says, that's the meekness of wisdom. The gentleness, the patience, the endurance of wisdom is when those qualities are becoming a part of the way that you relate to God in his word. But it's not just relationship to God, it's relationship with others as well. Meekness towards others, that's what's in view. Paul actually speaks of this to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, listen to what he, he says to Timothy, especially as Timothy relates to the outside world. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. But instead, be kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Correcting opponents with gentleness, that's the word for meekness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. All right, so I just want to put you in a scenario for just a minute. You've got an, you've got an antagonistic unbeliever who's provoking you in conversation about Christianity. What do you do? That's sort of the situation that Timothy's actually in. He's on the front lines of ministry in Ephesus. You know what Paul says? Don't engage in quarrels. There's probably going to be all kinds of red herons that's going to rise up in the conversation. They're going to chase these rabbits here or there, and they're going to find something they disagree with. They're going to pounce on you for it and go after Don't fall into that. That does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Don't fall into quarrels. Be slow to speak. Slow to anger. Instead, be kind to everyone. Be kind to everyone. A, a, a deep kindness, not a southern niceness. Not this syrupy, sweet fakeness. He's talking about a kindness that draws in the welcome of the gospel. It looks at people as the eternal souls that they are and knows that life and death hang in the balance in the conversations with the outside world. A kindness that says, I want everything about me in terms of presentation, in terms of conduct, disposition, and vocabulary to be winsome for the purposes of the gospel. Be kind to everyone. Patiently endure evil. Notice the wisdom of Paul's words there. He doesn't say, get ready and fight back when they attack you. No, he says, 
patiently endure evil. You know what also he's assuming? Is that you will experience evil from the outside world. When it comes, endure it. Patiently. Patiently endure. And when the opportunity arises to correct your opponents, do so. Correct them with gentleness, with meekness. One of the, one of the, we could call that a charter for cultural engagement. Which, if you look at current models of, of cultural engagement of, of Christians in the world, doesn't really go by that rhythm. We are tempted, aren't we, to pick up the tactics of the world in our defense of our Christianity. But we can never expect to win a hearing and to influence when we take the content of the kingdom and we push it through the means of the world. God has ordained not just the ends of what we communicate. He's dictated the means through which we do it. We do it meekly. Patience, kindness, enduring evil, correcting with gentleness. I love what John Blanchard said here. He said, even if we'd won every round and convinced every other person of every point, we might do so in such a way as to leave them more determined to have nothing to do with us or our religion, especially if it produces people like us. In many ways, Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, the gospel is enough of offense. Don't add to it by the way you act. But it's not just relationships to the outside world. It's relationships to each other as Christians. Galatians 6.1, Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him meekly, often translated gently, or in the spirit of meekness. But watch yourselves, lest you be tempted. Now, I want you to see both the strength and the gentleness being brought together in Paul's statement. The word he uses for restore, we kind of hear restore and we think, that's sweet. I love restoration. You know, we think of restoration hardware. Oh, I love that store, you know, or I love this, this, this furniture that gets restored. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. And it is a beautiful thing. The term is actually a medical term. And it means to bring a dislodged joint back into joint or to position a broken bone back into position. Do you still have warm and fuzzies about that word restore? It's actually being called into, into painful, difficult ministry activity. When you see a brother in sin, go restore him. It's going to be like putting a joint back in joint. That's what it's going to feel like. That's what it's going to like. So when you do it, do it with gentleness. Do it with meekness. Now, what, is it, what would that mean? Because the work of putting a joint back in, you have to do it with some firmness. To, to set that bone, you have to cause a little pain, the right kind of pain, with a gentleness that actually, as you look at their eyes, as you're addressing the situation, they are fully aware that you absolutely love them. And you come to them not as someone who is condescending, not as someone who is over and above and, uh, anything that they would experience. You come as someone who's susceptible to the very same sins, to the very same struggles. You come with one with some eyes wet 
at the grief of what you know your own heart does and its sinfulness to the Lord and what you know you long for your brother or sister to experience as they walk in the richness of what God has called them to do. And you would have, you want nothing more than for that to happen. That's the spirit of what he's describing here. He's describing what Paul David Tripp subtitled his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He said this, we are all people in need of change, helping people in need of change. People pick up on that. People know if you're coming like the resident armchair expert to fix them. That is not the spirit that's being described in Galatians 6.1. You're coming as one who's been there, who will need it again, but it's your turn to care for a brother and sister in Christ. Strength and gentleness side by side. Now, what's remarkable about this is that as Jesus is describing this, moving from wildness to tameness to restoration and, and care, this work of meekness, he says, listen, here's the reward. Blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Now, if you had just thought, okay, blessed are the meek, you fill it in. What's the blessing going to be? Not that. Th theirs is the earth. Like they're going to get the whole earth. Like the meek are going to get the whole earth. There is nothing more countercultural than what Jesus just said. Because the world tells us that the only people who get ahead in the earth are those who assert themselves, who set their agenda, who accomplish it. The people who ride to the top, who make the laws, not the people who submit to them. It's an incredibly countercultural picture. Not only in our day, it would have been in the first century. Who did the Jews expect the Messiah to be? The Jews that are listening to Jesus speak the Sermon on the Mount. Who did they expect him to be? They expected him to be a military leader who would put the Roman government in their proper place. That's who they expected him to be. They wanted to see kingdom by force. That's what they wanted to see. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for theirs is the inheritance of all of the earth. What? What? This picture of what Jesus is giving to us is not a survival of the fittest. It's a survival of the meekest. It's, it's a people who actually outlast the ones who are in rebellion, the ones who show forth all of the will and the energy and the effort. These are the ones who actually submit to the kingdom of Jesus, who submit to the authority of Jesus, who allow his grace to tame them, who are constantly being corrected by his parameters to live in the way of Christ. They're the ones who are going to have all the earth. Now, how in the world is that possible? Well, because of who Jesus is. Because of who Jesus is. Now listen, if Jesus is a king and he's establishing a kingdom and we're told his kingdom is going to go all over the earth and there's not going to be a square inch of the earth that the Lord Jesus Christ, right, doesn't claim mine, as Abraham Kuyper liked to say. If there's not one square inch that that is true of and you're in Christ, then all the earth is yours. But how is that possible? Well, because meekness is who Jesus is. And the earth that he's inheriting, the new heavens and the new earth that he's gone to prepare for us, is an earth that was inherited to him, given to him by his father, by virtue of his meekness. What do I mean by that? 
Well, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes it beautifully. Here is Jesus, this God of gods, the second person of the Trinity, king of heaven itself, we're told, didn't grasp for equality, but instead humbled himself and became a servant, emptying himself of all of his privileges, living under the will of his Father. It is my meat and drink to do the will of my Father in heaven. Living in submission to the authority of the Father, patiently waiting for the Father's provision, step by step looking for his hand in providence and faith as his pathway towards redemption unfolded. Jesus describes himself and his mission as a mission of meekness. Think of one of his most famous clarion gospel calls, Matthew chapter 11. When he says, you could probably finish it for me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is lowly and meek. That's his yoke. That's the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is a way of, a way of meekness. His yoke is one that as he carries it, accomplishes the securing of the new heavens and the new earth and all of those whom he has bought with his blood. You know, right now in Christ Jesus, don't you realize you already have all the earth? Because you know what you have when you're meek? You have the gift of contentment. The gift of contentment is what attaches to the virtue of meekness. C.S. Lewis said it really well in one of his letters. He was describing his own financial condition as one that was very modest at the time and had not changed in a long time. But then he said this, And yet it has pleased my God to pour into my soul great tranquility, I may even say gaiety, celebration, for in it I am remembering in grace what I would be without grace. All of this... Deficit, all of these challenges. He's remembering, he's in a position of remembering in grace what he wouldn't have if he was without grace. And he realizes he's got everything he needs. Do you see, that's the, that's the key of meekness. That's the secret of meekness. Is that when you are meek, you're content. You already have all of the earth. You already have it because you have Christ, all of the benefits and the blessings of Christ. You know the security that he's going to prepare a place and when he comes back, he's going to take you there and you're going to live in his kingdom where everything is at your feet, fully taken care of. You already know that. That's a certain thing. So you live in the reality of that now. The kingdom that's already and not yet. The kingdom that's been established but is coming. It's yours in Christ Jesus through contentment. But one day, listen... One day it'll really be ours, those who are meek, because we will be in that new heavens and new earth. And we will have those mansions of which he's prepared for us. We will be in the dwelling place along the streets of gold. We will, we will see the glorious gates. We will see the shining faces of all of whom Jesus has bought. We will see the beauty of this earth heightened to such a degree that we couldn't imagine it would be as beautiful as it is. And we will find ourselves then utterly content in the meekness that got us there 
all along the way. There's a book on our book's shelf this morning called The Golden Shore. It's a story of Adoniram Judson. There's a section in that wonderful story of Judson the missionary to the people of Burma where he being captured and strung up on it by his thumbs and thrown into prison was asked the question, now what are your plans for Christianizing the heathen? What are your plans now that they've captured you and thrown you in? You know, so much for the mission, Judson. Judson's reply, my future is as bright as the promises of God. Can you say that? Can you say that? My future is as bright as the promises of God. You see how he was living in them. And they had become to him his authority. And he had been humbled by them into a ministry of strong gentleness. Listen, it takes a lot of strength to be gentle. It's easy to lose self-control. It's hard not to. The real strength is not in the lack of self-control and asserting your will. The real strength is in living according to the will of Christ and finding all of your joy right there. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the inheritance of all of the earth. Father in heaven, we would ask for this blessing, more meekness. In the life of each of us individually and in the life of all of us corporately, let the patience and forbearance, let the long-suffering and the gentleness, let the quietness and the submissiveness, let the strength that's been tamed by grace become more and more the manifest reality of every heart in this room. Lord, we pray towards the kingdom that is coming and now is. And we pray more of that kingdom to come on earth, even as it is in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.